Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about worship. Now, in the past, we've talked about worship, and we've talked about how worship is under attack today. But this isn't the goal of this particular episode that you're going to listen or watch today. Instead, what we're going to do today is we're going to lay out more of a positive case. I'm I'm going to bring in some examples of how worship is under attack today. But the main goal is to focus on what does Scripture have to say about how the Christian is to engage in worship and how is the church supposed to engage in worship. So that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. Worship involves acknowledging God to be, as he is, the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And so worship is to ascribe and render to him the glory of all that is good, to seek all things in him alone, and in everyone to have recourse to him alone. That was John Calvin writing on worship on his track, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. The English word worship derives from the Old English term worship. It means worthiness or acknowledgement of worth. And it's a fitting term because of the Bible's insistence that God is to be acknowledged as worthy and praised for his character and his mighty works. Worship is a chief priority of the people of God, a motivating factor in our Lord's salvation for his people. Exodus 3.12 explains that God redeemed his people Israel from Egypt so that they would serve him on Mount Horeb, known as Mount Sinai. This service was to involve feast and sacrifice, which are elements of worship that we see in Exodus 5, or Exodus, Exodus 5, 1-3. And when the Israelites gathered at Sinai, the Lord announced that he had saved them from slavery in order to make them a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, 1-6. And since the chief duty of the priest is to conduct the worship of God, we see that one of the primary purposes for God's salvation is to create a people who will worship him. Now, the exodus in the constitution of Israel as a worshipful community is not the first time we read of worship in the Bible. Actual descriptions of worship go back to Cain and Abel, where Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. The patriarchs worshiped God, right? They built altars, they offered sacrifices, they made vows to serve the Lord, and engaged in other practices later associated with uh, the, the Israel's regular worship. Now, the exodus and the giving of the Mosaic Law, it formalized worship and established its structure under the Old Covenant. Old Covenant worship centered around the sacrificial system. God's people offered sacrifices first to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable sanctuary that served as a central place of worship for Israel from the time it was built under Moses until Solomon built the temple as a permanent house of worship. 
Now, after Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle was no longer needed. Israelites had to travel to Jerusalem in order to offer the various sacrifices prescribed in the law of Moses. And adult males were responsible to go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year in order to keep the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. The, the worship structure and rituals for the Old Covenant were strictly regulated. God made his presence dwell in the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple, but only the high priest could ever enter there, and only once a year. The description of the tabernacle and the temple with our intricately woven curtains, extensive use of precious metals, ornate carvings, they indicate that beauty was prized in God's worship. This means that we should take beauty and worship seriously. And although sacrificial worship can only be offered at the tabernacle and the temple under the Old Covenant, other kinds of worship could be offered throughout the Promised Land. The Levites lived throughout the territory given to Israel, where they were responsible to teach the law of God. Teaching is an aspect of worship. Biblical evidence for prayers and singing outside the city of Jerusalem where the temple was built indicates that these elements of worship occurred throughout the Promised Land. For instance, the Psalms of Ascents were sung as the people traveled up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Now, during the period of the Babylonian exile, the Old Covenant people, now called the Jews, built synagogues where they settled in Babylon and constructed them in the Promised Land when they returned. In fact, the Jews built synagogues throughout the world wherever they settled. In these synagogues, the people learned the scriptures. They prayed, they sang hymns, and they collected money to help the poor. The New Testament indicates that Jesus and the apostles participated in synagogue worship, and the synagogue format and liturgy became a model for the New Covenant Church. Now, with the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, many elements of the Old Covenant worship passed away. Worship is no longer offered only in Jerusalem, but is offered wherever people call on the, on the one true God in spirit and truth, approaching him through the person and work of Christ. Today, Christians do not offer animal sacrifices, but instead offer the sacrifice of praise as we sing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. The new covenant worship is centered on the word and the sacrament, on the preaching of the word of God, and the celebration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Corporate worship of gathered God's gathered people, it takes place on the Lord's Day, but believers can worship privately throughout their week and should through reading and studying the, uh, the word and even gathering in a small group with, a, with members of the local church, maybe groups of 5 to 25 throughout the week to, to talk about, you know, what, what did they hear uh, preached that day or a more specific study. Now, different theological traditions have structured worship differently. But in general, the Reformed tradition seeks to worship only according to Scripture's commands. What this means is that everything we do in worship should have biblical warrant. Though applying the Bible's guidance on worship is not always as simple here. And, and we will not go far wrong, however, if we see the worship of God primarily for God and not for ourselves, meaning that we should not be in the, the worship of God's people, uh, whether you're a worship leader or worship pastor or you're engaging in worship, you're not doing it for entertainment. Our goal should be to approach him with reverence and awe, not to create worship experiences geared to entertain or to amuse. 
worship conducted decently and in order, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.40, under the authority of called and biblically qualified elders, and that includes the sound teaching of Scripture, songs that explore the depth of our Creator and His attributes, heartfelt prayer, the right administration of baptism, and the Lord's Supper is pleasing to God. John Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion 2.8.11 says, Surely the first foundation of righteousness is the worship of God. R.C. Sproul in his article, How Then Shall We Worship? in Table Talk Magazine says, Pleasing God is at the heart of worship. Therefore, our worship must be informed at every point by the Word of God as we see God's own instructions for worship that is pleasing to Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith 21.2 says, Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. Now, three quarters of the way through the 20th century, Francis A. Schaeffer asked the question, How should we then live? His book of the same name answered the questions raised by the radical shift in our culture from modernity to postmodernity. The question that we face in our generation is closely related to it. How should we then worship? The how of worship is a hotly disputed matter in our day. The issue has been described as a war of worship. In fact, if there has been a worship war in the church in America in the last 30 years, as there has, then surely by now, the outcome, we would say, has become decided. And yet, far and away, uh, the victorious mode of worship in our day is that form roughly described as contemporary worship. Contemporary in this context is contrasted with traditional, which is seen as being outmoded, passe, irrelevant uh, to contemporary individuals. Those who deem the contemporary shift in worship as a deterioration are in the minority, and so it behooves us to explore how the how question that Schaefer first raised. The how question is related to other questions usually pursued by journalists who seek to unwrap the details of a particular story. They ask questions like who, what, where, when, and how. And in like manner, the best place for us to answer the how question of worship is to begin with the who question. Manifestly, the most important question we ask is, who is it that we are called upon to worship with our hearts, our minds, and our soul? And the answer to that question at first glance is exceedingly easy. From a Christian perspective, the obvious reply is that we are called upon to worship the triune God. And as easy as that answer is on the surface, when we see the concern given to this question throughout the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament, we realize that as fallen creatures, it is one of our most basic and fundamental inclinations to worship something or someone other than the true God. And it's not by accident, then, that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, they focus attention on the true God, who we are to worship according to His being. And the New Testament calls us to honor God with true worship. Paul reminds us that at the heart of our fallenness is a refusal to honor God as God or to show proper gratitude to Him with praise and thanksgiving. And so it is imperative that the Christian, at the beginning of their pursuit to understand what true worship is, gets a clear uh, uh, understanding that the object of our worship is to be uh, is to be God and God alone. And when we move to the where question, it doesn't appear to matter as much. 
We recall Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well when he said that the New Testament church has no appointed central sanctuary where all true worship must take place. It's not necessary for Christians to migrate to Jerusalem in order to offer authentic worship to God. And yet, at the same time, we notice throughout biblical history that people met together in a variety of locations, including house churches, in the early years after Christ's ascension. The house church phenomenon of the first century was not something intended to avoid institutional churches or to seek an underground church as such, but what was was basically built on the foundation of convenience because the church was so small that the number of believers could easily meet in a home. And as the church grew in number, it became necessary to find a place where a larger group could assemble for the solemn worship of God as an act of corporate praise and celebration. And so today, it would seem that the obvious answer to the where question is that we should be worshiping together with other Christians as we gather in local churches under biblically qualified elders. And so the when question is also a question that is given attention biblically. Obviously, it is the obligation of the believer to worship God every day at all times, but God appoints special times and seasons for the gathering of his people in corporate worship. We see this in the Old Testament. That special time was established early on to be the Sabbath. And the term Sabbath, that means seventh, or a cycle of one in seven. In the Old Testament economy, it was on the seventh day of the week after the resurrection, the split of the Christian community from Judaism. It was changed from the seventh to the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week although the seventh-day cycle remains intact. And we understand that when the Christian community meets in a solemn assembly, the communion of the saints means that not only are Christians joined together locally in their particular congregations, but that the worship of God goes beyond the walls of each individual church and incorporates churches around the nation and around the world, who, for the most part, are meeting at the same time. But the where and the when questions, they pale in into insignificance when we return our attention to the how question. And the how question is ultimately determined by the who question. We are to worship God how God wants us to worship him. This is the apparent crisis in the revolution of worship today. And the driving force behind this radical shift in how we worship God today is not because of a new discovery of the character of God, but rather through the pragmatic studies on what works to attract people to corporate worship. And thus we devise new ways of worship that will accommodate the worship of the people of God to those who are outside of the covenant community. In fact, we're told that churches ought to be seeker sensitive. That is, they ought to design worship services to be appealing to people who are unbelievers. Now, that might be a wonderful strategy for evangelism. But we must remember that the purpose of Sabbath worship is not primarily evangelism. Worship and evangelism are not the same thing. The solemn assembly is to be the assembling of Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are united to Christ by faith. That is the body of Christ, to ascribe worship and honor and praise to their God and to their Redeemer. And the worship must not be designed to please the unbeliever or the believer. Worship should be designed to please God. We remember the tragic circumstances of the sons of Aaron in the Old Testament who offered strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded. And as a result of their experiment in worship, God devoured them instantly. And in protest, Aaron went to Moses inquiring about God's furious reaction. Moses reminded Aaron that God had said that he must be regarded as holy by all who approach him. 
In fact, we can say that the one of the attributes of God that should inform our thinking about worship more than any other is his holiness. This is what defines his character, and it should be manifested in how he responded to them. And to be sure, God is both transcendent and eminent. He's not merely remote and aloof and apart from us. He comes to join us. He abides with us. He enters into our fellowship. He brings us into his family. We invoke his presence. But when we are encouraged to draw near to him in New Testament worship, we are encouraged to draw near to a God who, even in his eminence, is altogether holy. In fact, we can say that the modern movement of worship is designed to break down all barriers between man and God, to remove the veil, as it were, from the fearsome holiness of God, which might cause us to tremble. It's designed to make us feel comfortable. The music we import into the church is music that we draw from the world of entertainment in the secular arena. One theologian, perhaps recently, fairly recently, said he was not only pleased with this innovative style of worship and music, but thought that what the church needs today is music that is even more funky. And when we hear clergy and theologians encourage the church to be more funky in worship, the, the church has lost its identity. Rather, we need to return to Augustine, who agreed that we can use a variety of music in our worship, all, but all that is done should be done with a certain gravitas, a certain solemnity, uh, always containing the attributes of reverence and awe before the living God. And so the what of worship, the where of worship, the when of worship, and especially the how of worship must always be determined by the character of the one who is a living God. That, that is, to put it simply, the regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. And on the surface, it is difficult to see why anyone who values the authority of Scripture would find such a principle objectionable. Is not the whole of life itself lived according to the rule of Scripture? This is a principle dear to the hearts of all those who call themselves biblical Christian. To suggest otherwise is to open the door to living however we want to live. But things are rarely so simple. Scripture does not tell me whether I may or may not listen with profit to a Mahler's symphony, find stamp collecting rewarding, or any other thing as a useful occupation. Even though there are well-meaning but misguided Bible-believing Christians who assert with dogmatic confidence that any or all of these violate the will of God. Knowing God's will in any circumstance is an important function of every Christian's life and fundamental to knowing it is a willingness to submit to Scripture as God's authoritative word for all ages and all circumstances. But what exactly does biblical authority mean in such situations? Well, Scripture lays down uh, specific requirements. We are to worship uh, with God's people on the Lord's day, and we should engage in useful work and earn our daily bread. In addition, covering every possible circumstance, Scripture lays down general principles. Romans 12, 1-2 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So all of life is to be regulated by the word of God, whether, whether by express commandment or prohibition or by general principle. There is therefore, in one sense, a regular principle for all of life. In everything we do, and in some form or another, we are to be obedient to the word of God. 
Well, the Reformers, John Calvin especially, and the Westminster Divines, as representatives of the 17th century Puritanism, they view the matter of corporate worship differently. In this instance, a general principle of obedience to Scripture is insufficient. There must be and is a specific prescription governing how God is to be worshipped corporately. In, in the public worship of God, specific requirements are to be made, and we are not free either to ignore them or to add to them. John Calvin, in The Necessity of Reforming the Church, says, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 in 22.1 says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestion of Satan, under uh, any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And where does the Bible teach this? Well, in more places than is commonly imagined, including the constant stipulation of the book of Exodus with respect to the building of the tabernacle, that every thing be done after the pattern shown you in Exodus 25:40. The judgment pronounced upon Cain's offering, suggestive as it was that his offering or his heart was deficient according to God's requirement in Genesis 4, 3 through 8. And the first and the second commandment showing God's particular care with regard to worship in Exodus 22 through 6. The incident of the golden calf teaching as it does the wor- that worship cannot be offered merely according with our own values and our own tastes. The story of Nadab and Abihu and the offering of strange fire in Leviticus 10. The, God's rejection of Saul's non-prescribed worship. God said to obey is better than sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Jesus' rejection of the Pharisaical worship according to the tradition of the elders in Matthew 15, 1 through 14. All of these indicate a rejection of worship offered according to the values and directions other than those specified in the word of God. Of particular significance are Paul's responses to errant public worship at Colossae and Corinth. At one point, Paul characterized the public worship in Colossae as ethnoscrasia in Colossians 2.23, variously translated as whale worship in KJV or self-made religion in the ESV. The Colossians had introduced elements that were unacceptable even if they were claiming an angelic source for their actions, one possible interpretation of Colossians 2.18, the worship of angels, perhaps. It is in the Corinthian use, abuse of tongues and prophecy that we find the clearest indication of the apostle's willingness to regulate corporate worship. He regulates both the number and the order of the use and the spiritual gifts that does not apply to all of life. No tongue is to be employed without an interpreter, as 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28 says. And only two or three prophets may speak in turn, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 29 through 32. At the very least, Paul's instruction to the Corinthians underlines that corporate worship is to be regulated in a manner that applies differently from that which is to be true for all of life. Now, the result of this is what? 
The particular elements of worship are highlighted reading the Bible. We see that in 1 Timothy 4.13. Preaching the Bible, 2 Timothy 4.2. Singing the Word of God, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. The Psalms as well as scriptural songs that reflect the development of redemptive history and the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Praying the Bible. The Father's house is a house of prayer. Matthew 21.43. And seeing the Bible in the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper as we see in Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38 through 39, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Now, in addition, occasional elements such as oath, vows, solemn and fasts, and thanksgivings have also been recognized and even highlighted, as we see in the Westminster Confession of Faith 21.5. And it's important to realize that the regular principle of worship as applied to public worship, it actually frees the church from acts of impriety and uh, being idiots. We're, we're not free, for example, to advertise that performing clowns will meme the Bible lesson uh, at next week's Sunday service. And yet it does not commit the church to a cookie cutter liturgical sameness. With an adherence to the principle, there is an enormous room for variation and matters that Scripture has not specifically addressed. And thus, the regulative principle of worship, as such, may not be evoked to determine whether contemporary or traditional songs are employed, whether uh, three verses or three chapters of Scripture are read, whether one long prayer or several short prayers are made, or whether a single cup or individual cups with real wine or grape juice are utilized at the Lord's Supper. To all of these issues, the principle is expressed in 1 Corinthians 14.40, that all things should be done in uh, done decently and in good order. However, if someone suggests uh, dancing or drama is a valid aspect of public worship, the question must be asked, where's the biblical justification for it? It suggests that a preacher moving about in the pulpit or employing dramatic voices is drama, and the sense uh, above is to trivialize the debate. The fact that both may be able to employ the colloquialism, neat, is debatable, and besides the point, there's no shred of biblical evidence, let alone mandate for either. And so, to argue from the poetry of the Psalms or the example of David dancing before the ark naked to be sure, unless we are willing to abandon all the received rules of biblical interpretation. It is a salutary fact that no office of choreographer or producer or director existed in the temple. The fact that both dance and drama are valid Christian pursuits is also beside the point that I'm making here. What, what is sometimes forgotten in these discussions is the important role of conscience. Without the regular principle, we are at the mercy of the worship leaders and bullying pastors who charge non-compliant worshipers with displeasing God unless they participate according to a certain pattern and a manner. And to the victims of such bullies, the sweetest sentence ever penned by men is this in the Westminster Confession of Faith 20.2, which says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and the commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or besides it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray the true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason also. And so to obey when it is a matter of God's prescription is true liberty. Anything else is bondage and legalism. Well, we've 
talked about a lot today about why worship matters. It matters personally because the Lord sees, the Lord knows, but it matters eminently corporately. And as we're seeing and as we've talked about on this show, we're seeing the rise of Bethel and elevation and all of these things. And what the regular principle of worship does is it helps us to have all of our worship grounded in the word of God and how that is expressed, how that's worked out. That is a matter and the decision of, of the elders. And even, even there, one thing that I, I have heard from many pastors that many uh, elders do is they will just read the, the songs that are being sung. And not with music or anything being played, just reading the song to see if they're theologically solid. Now, I'm not saying that you you should sing Bethel or Hillsong or Elevation. I think that uh, churches should avoid that, and there's good reasons why. Because if when you sing those songs, you have to pay money, and you are that money goes to support uh, the false teaching of movements like Bethel and Hillsong and Elevation, and Christians. We should care about this because it is a matter of stewardship. And pastors should care about this because it sends the wrong message that these movements are not false. And as pastors and ministry leaders, one of our jobs is to guard the flock from error. And we are to call out, Titus 1.9 tells us this, that we are to be able to refute doctrine. One of the reasons that we're doing this episode is to lay out a positive case here is what worship is. Here is what worship looks like. Here is what it looks like when it's regulated by the Word of God. And then how it's worked out. That could be a matter of discussion among biblically qualified elders as they figure out in their local churches about the songs and the, and the way and the manner in which they're going to sing and worship the Lord as prescribed in His Word. I'm saying to be clear that our worship whether it's personal, whether it's corporate, it's to be grounded and regulated by the Word of God. How we go about that, whether we use instruments or the piano or guitars or anything of the like, that's, that's less clear in the Bible. But the fact is, is we can sing traditional songs, we can sing, you know, contemporary songs, and, and all of it. We, we should be writing songs. We should be writing songs that are grounded in the Word of God, grounded in and shaped by the Word of God, grounded in the rich uh, theological heritage of the church. You, you, look at, you look at men like Martin Luther. He was not only a great theologian, but he also wrote hymns. Uh, a Mighty Fortress is Our God is written by Martin Luther. And, and so we need, we need musicians that, that, that are biblically and theologically literate. They, they know both what the Bible says, they know, they know good theology, and they know what the church has said. Especially when we're singing, uh, it can bypass. And even Bill Johnson has said, you know what, their, their music can bypass their people's emotions, their senses, their discernment. And, and that is a warning for us uh, because how we are to worship should be regulated and controlled by the word of God. And, and it matters not only that the word is preached, but that the word is sung by the people of God. And so I hope that this episode has been helpful. It's been uh, clarifying about what the regulative principle is all about. And until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.
Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.